You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. to see you guys this morning, as I say every week just about. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. If we haven't met, my name's Jamie, one of the pastor elders of our church. Excited to open up the scriptures with you this morning as we do every Sunday morning as we continue to embark upon this, this new year together, a time, as I've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, when uh, many of us find ourselves establishing new resolutions or, or maybe recommitting ourselves to old resolutions unrealized, giving another go at it this year because it didn't work out last year, the year before. The word resolution by definition, meaning a firm decision to, to do or not to do something. So that to be resolute is to be admirably purposeful, determined and unwavering. And in that regard, a, a resolution can be a, a beautiful thing whether in sync with the turning page of a calendar or not, assuming that, as I've said the last couple of weeks as well, its aim is God's glory and its fuel is God's grace, that we're not trying to do these things in our own strength. We're not trying to do these things for our own glory. You see it in the life of the apostle Paul, Philippians chapter three, who says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. There's the resolute language. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That if the apostle Paul was anything, he was resolute. He was determined. He was unwavering. Throughout the month of January, we, we have been and will continue to camp out on a number of core convictions and values with the hope and aim that we as a church would be determined, that we would be unwavering, that we would be resolute in our commitment to these things. For some, perhaps a new commitment, maybe hearing some of these things for the first time. For others, a continuation in the same commitment. In the words of Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction. As you'll come to see, surely not an exhaustive list, the handful of things that we're gonna camp out on this month, and yet each and every one of these things critical to who we are as a church and and where we're headed. Again, in all these things, our aim, God's glory, our fuel, God's grace. And so with that said, I invite you to open up this morning to Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You're welcome to use one of those Bibles during your time with us. You're welcome to Take one of those Bibles if you don't currently have a Bible in your possession, if you don't own a Bible. As you're turning there, just a couple of things. Each one of these topics that we're gonna sit with over the course of the month of January stands alone in some sense, and yet they build on each other. They round each other out. So I would encourage you, knowing that many of you are back in the kids' wing one Sunday a month, that... uh, we're traveling, we're sick at times, to go back if you've missed any of these uh, times in the scriptures this month throughout the course of January and see how all this pieces together. I'll try to help give a little bit of a previously on sort of moment, but uh, I would commend those sermons to you over the past couple weeks if you've missed any of those. 
in addition, and then I'll pray, uh, this morning's gonna be a little different than the last couple Sundays where we primarily camped out in one passage of scripture and referenced others. Because in order to, to make sense of the fuller picture of where we're going this morning, we're gonna have to piece together a few different scriptures to offer up a systematic theology of what it means biblically to delight in the Lord. And so we're gonna start with Psalm 1611. That'll be our, our launching point, but we're gonna go other places. Uh, let, me, let me go ahead and pray for us and, and we'll dive into God's word together. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the many things that your word brings before us, its beauties, the truths that are there for us that help us to make sense of this world, creation, and redemption. Gotta pray this morning, trusting that your word doesn't return void, that there's something powerful in the means of grace that we call the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you to move in power in this place this morning. Would you awaken our minds from their slumber on this three-day weekend? Would you stir our hearts, Lord, our affections? Would you awaken us to the expulsive power of a new affection, as Thomas Chalmers once said, Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, we leave with hearts that are full. Lord, that it would be for your glory and the joy and good of your people. I pray that you would save lost sinners and sanctify your redeemed this morning as we sit with your word in front of us. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We talked about this before. What is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question, according to the catechism, is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, we, we exist to magnify God and to delight in him, meaning that God's glory and our joy, they're not, they're not enemies. They're not at odds with one another. That as John Piper has now been saying for years in his argument for this idea of Christian hedonism, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Psalm 1611, David says, you, O Lord, make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not partial joy, David says, nor joy with an expiration date. Fullness of joy, never lacking, pleasures forevermore, never ending. A joy that can only be known through Jesus Christ, the one in whom Psalm 16 finds its ultimate fulfillment, the one who established the true path of life to use the language of the psalmist, leading to eternal gladness, that path of life into the presence of God himself. Swallowed up by death, Jesus was on behalf of sinners as our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. The pangs of death, unable to hold him as he burst forth from the grave in triumph over Satan's sin and death. The one to whom those who have spent their resources in the failing pursuit of happiness can come and drink from the well that never runs dry. The fountain of true happiness in a world filled with broken cisterns. We talked about it over and over again in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes several years back. 
Going back to the, the last two Sundays, we, we must immerse ourselves in the scriptures if we have any hope of fighting the good fight of faith, a people committed to continuing in the sacred writings. We talked about that on New Year's Day. And we too must be a people who call the truth therein to mind when our hearts are most in danger of drifting from what we profess to believe. We talked about that last Sunday. When the sorrow is greatest, when the darkness is darkest. What I'm contending for this morning is that we too must pursue happiness in God. That it's possible to be well-versed in the scriptures absent of delight in the Lord. It's possible to be incredibly competent in how to wield the truth therein, absent of delight in the Lord. To make these spiritual disciplines of being in God's word and connecting the dots of what to call the truth to mind and what moments and what situations and those to be rote exercises. I've been there personally. And my guess is that many of you have too. Maybe some of us there even now on this very morning as we gather together. Our time in the scriptures this morning, it's about fighting for happiness in God, the fount of everlasting joy and exhortation to keep tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, to keep rejoicing in the salvation that's ours in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Even when, going back to last week, we find ourselves in a place of lament. David says elsewhere in the Psalms, Psalm chapter 40, verse 16, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Or as he says in Psalm chapter seven, verse four, almost synonymous to the words found in Psalm chapter 40, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. Right here you you have lyrics that sing of a delighting in the Lord that's bigger than any wind of circumstance, a delighting in God simply for who he is. May those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you, his character, his nature, and his being, delighting in the beauty of his holiness, delighting in the wonder of his steadfast love, delighting in his sovereign lordship over all things delighting in his unseen hand of providence, delighting in his goodness and mercy, delighting in the abundance of his grace. Lyrics 2, Psalm 40 and Psalm 70, that sing of a delighting in God's salvation. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord, or God is great. The many promises of God that find their yes in Jesus, delighting in those things, those promises, what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do for us in Jesus. Delighting in the forgiveness we've received in him. Delighting in the adoption we've received in him. Delighting in the righteousness that's ours in him. Delighting in the approachability of God's throne of grace in him. Delighting in the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit that's ours in him. Delighting in the hope of the second advent, the return of Jesus to make the hearts of his people happy in him forever. On the one hand, God invites us to delight in him simply for who he is and the salvation that's ours in Christ. And there's enough there in which to delight, is there not, for the rest of our lives this side of heaven and on into eternity. And yet, 
God too invites us to delight in him by enjoying the many everyday expressions of his kindness and grace to us. Which is what passages like 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 contend for. For everything created by God, Paul says, is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Or as Paul says a couple chapters later, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, Timothy, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly, here it is, provides us with everything to enjoy in which to delight. That if you zoom out on 1 Timothy chapter four, what you find is that Paul here is addressing a kind of asceticism that would lead people astray, a a stiff arming of the, the things of creation that surround us, so to speak going so far as to call such teaching demonic. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Like the lie that the serpent brought to Eve because there's nothing new under the sun. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which is not at all what God said, is it? He said delight in every tree but one. The, the one tree, a reminder that only God is God, all the other trees, an opportunity to delight in him with grateful hearts. That's how God set it up in the story of creation. Paul tells Timothy not to reject the things of creation, but to prayerfully and biblically receive them with thanksgiving from God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The laughter of children, the beauty of leaves in autumn, the warmth of friendship, the soothing sound of a crackling fire, We're surrounded, all of us, by everyday expressions of God's kindness and grace everywhere we look. It's inescapable, the handiwork of God, declaring something of who God is and what God is like. Look at the birds of the air, Matthew chapter six. Consider the lilies of the field. There's meaning all around us. A mustard seed teaching us something about faith, Matthew chapter 17 a pearl teaching us something about the worth of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 13. A tree with deep roots teaching us something about righteousness and stability, Psalm chapter one. Honey teaching us something of the sweetness of the word and what wisdom tastes like to the soul, Proverbs chapter 24. The last of those, by the way, an analogy that's lost on us if we haven't fully tasted and enjoys honey sweetness that we're meant to deeply enjoy the the pleasure of honey on our taste buds, that we might more deeply know something of what wisdom is to the soul. And that just one of many examples of what it is to delight in God by enjoying his gifts without fashioning those gifts into golden calves. Biblically, prayerfully, gratefully, that the many expressions of God's kindness and grace might enlarge our hearts our minds, our souls, that we might know God more, that we might love God more, that we might delight in God more. That yes, we should be gravely concerned with the dangers of idolatry, knowing that our hearts, as Calvin once said, are perpetual idol factories. 
And we should too be concerned with the inability to gladly and gratefully enjoy God's gifts to the honor and praise of his glorious grace. John Piper, I don't know, a couple decades ago now, came out with a book. Some of you may have read it or been influenced by it, entitled God is the Gospel. I think Piper got tired of going to funerals and hearing people use the language of Johnny swinging his nine iron right now up in heaven without any speak of Christ and the beauty and hope of Christ and being in his presence. And so Piper wrote a book, and in it, to paraphrase a question he presented, a sobering question, if you could have heaven with the absence of tears and pain and death, but Christ weren't there, would you wanna be there? If you could have heaven and be reunited with loved ones and Christ weren't there, would you wanna be there? If you could have heaven and, and have the absence of guilt and shame and wrath, but Christ weren't there, would you wanna be there? Hauntingly, he, he, he goes on to say in that book, because if the answer is yes, you won't be there. It's God is the gospel. That's the point of the title of the book, that God is the greatest gift that makes the good news good news. So that... Christ absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf to give one example is a means. It's a means so that we can stand in the 5,000 degree centigrade presence of the holiness of God and not be incinerated in an instant, but can enjoy making much of him forever. And that book was impactful on a lot of people, myself included. And then a guy named Joe Rigney came along about five or six years ago, and he wrote a book called The Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts was the subtitle. And in that book, he rounds out Piper's understanding and teaching of Christian hedonism. Piper actually writes the foreword for the book and says, nothing in this book conflicts with what I've been teaching for a couple decades, but it does complete it. And in that book, Rigney says, I'm not sure that we have to stick, stiff arm all the secondary wonders of, of the beauty of redemption in order to make Christ the ultimate gain of the gospel. It's one of the things that I love about C.S. Lewis that in his writings, you see the both and. You, you get the, the theology of Piper and Rigney coming together in great beauty Right? In, in the world of Narnia, you have Aslan, the, the lion, the Christ figure. And if you've read those stories, you, you know Lewis paints a picture of Aslan as the most beautiful of all things in the story. And you also get the sticky marmalade roll and the smell of its sweetness and the taste of its warmth in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver all of the beauties of the wonder of the, the Narnian landscape and countryside, like beams of the sun pointing themselves to the beauty and glory of Aslan. It's not one or the other. Lewis, if I could nerd out for a second, in another of his writings, his Space Trilogy, some of you have heard me share this before, the second of those books the, the main character, Elwin Ransom, goes to a, a planet, and, and the picture of this planet is that it's been untouched by the effects of the fall like ours. So it's a, it's a pre-fall 
sort of world. And so you have the Adam and Eve figures and you have the beauty and wonder of this creation that's untainted at this point. And he, he comes upon a tree with globes of yellow fruit and he's hungry and he's thirsty and he grabs hold of, of one of those globes of fruit and begins to drink from it and he cannot uh, down the road as he returns from this experience explain it. There aren't words in, in our vocabulary to make sense of the wonder of this experience and after finishing re- receiving the, the wonder of, of what's inside of this globe of fruit, he considers for one second grabbing a second globe and, and having a repeat experience. But then he, he pauses and he says, why would anyone do that? That's like going to the symphony two times in the same day. And it's this communication of the principle of moderation. It's better than any communication of the principle of moderation that I've ever come across. You'll probably hear me bring up that illustration again. That for Lewis, he understood that the beams always point us and direct us to the sun while the sun stands as the greatest glory at the same time. That as God's redeemed, we get the the privilege of declaring God and God alone to be God, all the while experiencing something of his glory and grace in the good gifts that he bestows upon us. As G.K. Chesterton once wrote, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the play and the opera, grace before the concert and the pantomime, grace before I open a book, And grace before sketching, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Right, Chesterton understood, like Lewis, that God's purpose in creation and redemption is such that we can and must supremely and fully enjoy the sun without rejecting its beams. That we would delight in the Lord in the prayer before the meal and that we would delight in the Lord in the enjoyment of the meal itself. As Paul so famously said, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, to the glory of God. Again, coming back to the Westminster Catechism, uh, question one, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. They're not at odds. Piper would go on to argue, maybe we should retool that, the, the answer to question one to say, The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Recognizing that James 1 verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights. Aware of God's presence in all that we do, the gift of God in Christ, opening opening our eyes to see all other gifts rightly. That we might gratefully and joyfully receive them in a way that honors and glorifies our Father in heaven. Grateful enjoyment of God's gifts as just that, gifts, not God's. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that I can know something of the Father's provision for me in looking out at a bird on its perch or a field of flowers clothed in beauty and in that delight in the Lord. I'm grateful that I can know something of the the Father's love for me and the warmth of a really good snuggle with my kids and in that delight in the Lord. 
I'm grateful that I can know something of the, the hope of the melting of the bitter cold of evil in the imagery of the springtime bloom of Narnia. And in that, delight in the Lord. I'm grateful that I can know more deeply something of what wisdom is to the soul in simply enjoying the pleasure of honey on my taste buds. And in that, delight in the Lord. That I, I would say perhaps today is the day of salvation for, for some. The day to turn from broken cisterns, from empty wells to the fount of everlasting joy. The day to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness and the happiness that can only be found in him. None of this makes sense apart from Christ in its fullness. For we who have received that greatest of gifts, my prayer for each and every one of us is that we would fight to be happy in God and that we would fight for that for each other. Again, God invites us to delight in him simply for who he is and the salvation that's ours in Christ. And God too invites us to delight in him by enjoying the many everyday expressions of his kindness and grace to us. So that the, the application this morning would be this. So, so delight in the beauty of his holiness often. Delight in the wonder of his steadfast love. Delight in his sovereign lordship over all things. Delight in his unseen hand of providence in your life. Delight in his goodness. Delight in his mercy. Delight in the abundance of his wondrous grace. And two, go spend some time bird watching this week. That you might be reminded of the Father's provision for you. And in that, delight in the Lord. Go snuggle your kids this week. Give them a big warm hug that you might more deeply be reminded of the father's love for you as his child. And in that, delight in the Lord. Go get lost in the springtime bloom of Narnia that your heart might yet again be awakened to the hope of the melting of the bitter cold of evil when Jesus returns. And in that, delight in the Lord the sun and its beams that point to the sun. I love what we're about to do in just a moment because we get to experience that in this space before we leave and experience it out there. I mean, think about this for a moment. We're about to sing as the church corporately gathered that, that God deemed that this world that he created was one such that some things must be sung rather than spoken. And so God established harmonies and melodies and chord progressions. And he created trees that we could then create musical instruments out of so that we could sing to the praise of his glorious grace. Just listen as you sing, be an active listener to the wonder of this world that we've been brought into. It's the truest of fairy tales. And it's, it's got a soundtrack and two, when we receive the elements, partaking of the Lord's Supper, which if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to do, but rather that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. But if you are a Christian, when you take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood, consider that the world that God made was a world in which 
he deemed that there would be bread that we could understand better. Jesus Christ, the true bread, having come down from heaven and that we might understand something of what it is that his body was broken for us that we might be rescued in. When you receive of, of the cup, consider that God gave us something in the order of creation that we might know something of what it is that he shed his blood for us. That even in the, the receiving of the bread and the cup, that there's a sweetness to it. That even that might remind us of the sweetness of the salvation that's ours in Jesus. It's inescapable if we'll stop and slow down and look around and see it. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.